0: Well, thank you, uh, <coughs> Jeff, and thank you, First Baptist Church. It is a privilege to be here, and I, I, there is no, uh, I guess, <coughs> hyperbole is not even a, a possibility for, our, for the uh, Brettlett family. Uh, <coughs> uh, the rest of the Brettlett family regrets that they couldn't be here, by the way, except for my youngest, Cole. He was excited about coming uh, until he uh, found out uh, that uh, Mylena wasn't here, and then he got a cold. So, <laughs> <coughs> so Cole's not with us today. Uh, very suspicious sickness, if you don't mind me saying. But uh <coughs> uh, we are so honored to be here, and I, there's no way I could possibly <coughs> uh, manufacture the words that would accurately express how we feel about this church, um, and, uh, and 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 everything that has been done for us. Um, (coughs) And I guess all I can say is, if I spend too much more time on that, uh (coughs) not only will I fail in my attempt to do so, but uh, I will have significantly cut into the reasonable time I have been allotted to preach. And so I will default all of that for tonight. But I do want you to know before we begin that I do love you and I thank you from the bottom of my heart, um (coughs) as does my wife and... uh, uh my son and all of his pale, skinny, bald beautifulness <laughs> <coughs> uh, That is uh, Connor Bartlett So thank you very much uh, <coughs> If you have your Bibles, hopefully you do I won't say which Bible But if you have one <coughs> Turn with me, if you, that's as controversial as I'm going to be today, Okay <laughs> Half of you showed up for me to say something stupid to be mad at, and the other half showed up for me to say something stupid to laugh at. I'm going to disappoint the lot of you. (laughs) Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 51 through 58. As you're turning there, I'll make a few opening comments. At least in regards to the spheres of orthodoxy, I suppose this morning's text could be regarded as one of the most recognizable most contemplated, and most illuminated portions of Scripture that we have. Meditating on such a passage, at least for the deliberations of teaching, reminds me just how much more difficult it is to expound accustomed as opposed to unaccustomed passages for the obvious reason being that anything you say about the unknown is by definition enlightening. Here it seems, new revelation might well nigh be impossible from the perspective of human acuity. Having thus concluded, I have decided to default at least to a fresh perspective of already realized quantities of Holy Writ, that being of confidence. What is it in life that gives you confidence? This is actually a very important question. I can say at least, Practically, I understand this to be so considerably more now than I did a scant nine months ago. But before delving straight into the connection of confidence to the context of the resurrection, I think it first bears stating that there are two distinct kinds of confidence which we dare not conflate. The first being of worldly origin, an affectation of the flesh rooted in pride and manifested by arrogance and dissimulation. The second, the genuine, being the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer, who has no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. It is that confidence, rather, which is born of humility and displayed through a righteousness, peace, and joy unspeakable and immutable. The latter being so rare in this present spiritual malaise we call Laodicea, that it seems hardly demonstratable. For this reason, many modern evangelical Christians have wrongly conceded that it must be divinely set aside for a select uber-spiritual few, when in truth, the Apostle Paul tells us that this genuine, this heavenly, this godly, this positionally and emotionally fixed confidence which we are told is impervious to circumstance, I might add, is available to everyone who has been redeemed. Now listen to me. If you don't have that, if the pain of the death of a loved one, for instance, or the physical and emotional trial of a serious or prolonged illness, if the anguish of being unable to free yourself or a family member from an undesirable station in life, If the utter discouragement of a failing or a failed love relationship or the horrific contemplations of your mortality growing more stark with age are like the angry foaming sea eroding the sands of your once cavalier and fulfilling life from beneath your feet, then friend, you need to know something very important this morning which can be revealed from our text. Saved or unsaved, God wants you to be delivered from, and let's just be honest this morning, calling it what it is. God wants you to be delivered from not just the loss of whatever it is you mean by that normally vapid expression, happiness, but what is in awful truth a growing psychological menace a clear threat to your very sanity. Now, did you hear me? God wants you to be delivered from that to a joy unspeakable and full of glory, to a peace that passes human comprehension, to a confidence in Christ that gives boldness and access to Him, enabling the saints to smile back at death when he turns his ghastly, grinning maw usward. Brothers and sisters, I say again, that God wants this for you, and I further assert that whatever it is God desires for a man is possible for a man. You don't have to live your life in the bondage of fear. That's a choice. Now, that may lack a certain, let's say, Calvinistic sentiment but it is indeed a choice that you make because the strength of fear is sin and the condemnation of sin is the law and the blood of Jesus Christ has set us at liberty from the one by fulfilling the other in the person of Jesus of Nazareth and his finished work of the gospel God has not given us the spirit of fear, brothers and sisters, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So why is it then that those to whom God has freely granted His Spirit seem in these last days to so infrequently possess this biblical confidence of which we speak this morning? I believe, as much as I believe any verity in God's Word, that the answer to such an enigma can be found in these words behold i show you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead in christ I'm sorry and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption My beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, so much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, in a phrase, at least for the purposes of our subject matter, of your confidence, we could say that that verse encapsulated is saying that if you are secure in death, you can be steadfast in life. I suppose we could make that the premise of this presentation. <clears throat> and to that end, maybe worth bearing reiteration. If you are secure in death, you can be steadfast in life. I maintain this to be precisely the character of biblical competence. Throughout the Bible, there is an inexorable connection to steadfastness in faith and holiness in life that results in security in death which is presented at the close of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Allow me to explain. Now there is a man, an old crusty man, that a lot of people don't like, that had a big influence on my life. As it turns out, a bunch of old crusty men had a big influence on my life, which might well account for my particular four ways and folk ways. His name was Dr. Peter Ruckman, and he told me one time, when I was about 15 years old that there's a really practical reason for living a holy life. And I asked him, well, what would that be? And he said, well, in one sense or another, I suppose that every act of holiness that I have consciously engaged in since my salvation has been for me the preparation for physical death. And I had to ask, what do you mean? And he said, well, I've seen a lot of saints lose their faith in that final hour. And they die panicking and struggling. And I've noted that the reason that they die panicking and struggling is directly connected to the fact that they lived like fiends after their salvation. And their penalty for that was they did not get the confidence and peace that they could have had at the moment of death. And that is such a scary prospect for me, especially having beheld it, that if for any other reason, not experiencing that in my final hour is worth every ounce of holy living effort that I can muster. Maybe this is why J. Frank Norris, the quote-unquote great evangelist, Of the turn of the last century, died screaming out, I'm afraid to meet God. I've lived such a wicked life. Preparing to die. That, in one sense, is a right characterization of how a saint lives. And maybe this is exactly what is meant by that old phrase that the blood makes you safe. But the word, friend, the word makes you sure. 1 John chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 18-24, through 24, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. Now, it doesn't say, and hereby we are of the truth. You can be... ...of the truth and not know it. So, Theodore Beza, put that in your oatmeal pipe and smoke it. (laughs) And I'm going to demonstrate that here in one second. It is a scriptural truth that you can so abuse your salvation. That you can be of the truth and not know it, friend. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now watch, for if our heart condemn us, I know I'm not saved, I can't be saved. Nobody who is saved can do what I just did. Well, friend, if your heart condemn you, guess what? God doesn't give a rip. Your heart doesn't have diddly to do with whether or not you're saved. Your confidence that you're saved doesn't have diddly to do with whether or not you're saved. And somebody else thinking that you're not saved, or saved, doesn't have diddly to do with whether or not you are or are not saved. If the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to your soul in a one-time act of salvation by grace through faith, in the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, friend, fiend or saint, you are saved. But God will rob you of that confidence if you live like a fiend. If our heart condemns us, well, guess what? God is greater than our hearts, and know with all things. Beloved, if our heart condemneth not, then we have confidence towards God. Do you have confidence? Because I'm going to tell you, what happened to Connor nine months ago has taught me that the Christian life is all about And your confidence is rooted in your assurance of what happens to you when the silver cord breaks, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I awake within the presence of the King, and I shall see Him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. The greatest exposition And I know this may sound very Schmoozy and convenient But it is nonetheless true The greatest exposition I've ever heard On 2 Peter chapter 1 Verses 3 through 14 Has actually been done by Your esteemed pastor Jeff Bartell Good job Jeffrey So I won't deign to go through it Verse by verse And exactly tell you what it says I'm going to assume that it was as meaningful to you as it was to me, and you have memorized everything that Jeffrey said about it. That's what I'm going to assume. (laughs) But what I do think is interesting about that passage of Scripture is that the process of sanctification, which is actually built on that key word, virtue, which is doing what you know to do, And that being the linchpin for the entire process of sanctification that, for lack of a better term possibly, we could just call holy living. Do you know what that whole thing is actually given in the context of? Certain promises. And do you know one of those promises being that you would not get yourself into such a plight? Now listen, that you could forget that you were once purged from your old sins. Imagine having been purged from your old sins and getting to life's final hour and rattling out your last ghost-like breaths, your last ghost-like breaths, having forgotten that you had been cleansed by the blood of Christ. Can you imagine How would you die? So what does that have to do necessarily with death? Well, let's pick up the reading. In verse 9, But he that lacketh these things is blind. He cannot see a far-off judgment seat of Christ by way of comparing Scripture with Scripture. Having anointed your eyes, salve, your eyes with eyes that you may see. For if ye do these things... Ye shall never fall, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore? Because of that. Conjunction. Conjunction, junction, what's that function? Well, we all know. It's hooking up words, phrases, and clauses. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. Why? Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing, context, that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle. You know what Peter is saying? The process of sanctification is about having confidence at the moment of the putting off of your present tabernacle. Maybe Dr. Rugman was on to something. So in the Bible we see, if you will, a spiritual synergy between faith in life and confidence in death to wit. If you are confident in death, you can face anything, and I do mean anything, that life throws at you. Now as we begin to look at the first two verses of our text, and we will do this quickly, we will see Paul providing us With two reasons that we as believers in Jesus Christ can be, and therefore should be, secure in death. Reason number one being because of the promise of the rapture of the church. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ, I'm sorry, I did it again. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now, as most of us are well aware, Paul is referencing a future event. An event that that many of us would call, quote-unquote, the rapture of the church. Those of us who would do so would be the first to recognize, I might add, that the phrase rapture of the church, much less the term rapture itself, appears nowhere in the Bible. I just had a couple of people... Try and cause problems at Wildwood for my using of this phrase. Some fundies that we sent packing very quickly. (laughs) Well, you say, well, I'm on the fundy side. Isn't it a dangerous practice, this assigning of extra biblical handles to Bible doctrines, which you weird King James living faithy nut job preachers are forever warning against? All right, good point. I'll give you your debate point. I'll win in the end, but you get those points now. Indeed, it is a dangerous practice for which we do incessantly warn but are careful to never condemn outright. We begrudgingly make exceptions when it can be verified that it isn't being done as a cloak of deceit for false doctrine, which normally it is, but not always. See, for reference, our use of trinity Antichrist, Pentateuch, Tetragrammaton, and Canon, not being biblical terms, but decidedly biblical concepts. And therefore, we use those terms. In the instance of 1 Corinthians chapter 50, uh, f- uh, 15, verses uh, 51 through 58, we have the term rapture, which I won't bore you with rapturos and catching away and gag me. The calling out of all true believers immediately preceding the time of Jacob's trouble are what is more commonly referred to as the tribulation period, though I must insert here that even that is not a title to be found anywhere in Scripture, but is merely derived from the pejorative description, great tribulation assigned to the time of Jacob's trouble, which in turn is a prelude to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and subsequent millennium, our millennial reign of Christ, both of which I must add, are terms also appearing nowhere in the Bible, yet curiously find their place on the supposed exemption list of the exact biblical term-only protocols of certain sects of fundies which have recently been kicked out of Wildwood Baptist Church. They never cease to amaze me, these fundies, with their many splendid hypocrisies some of them so persuaded by their conviction against extra-biblical nomenclature as to feel compelled to utterly denounce so doing when, for whatever reason, it comes to the rapture, yet are undaunted by their own doing of the same with most, if not all, of these aforementioned instances. But I digress. Paul gives added insight into this biblical event by whatever title you may call it. In its companion passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the catching away of the body of Christ, which Paul calls a mystery, incidentally that being a doctrine, which could not have been known in the Old Testament, for it was to be illuminated by the Apostle Paul in his writings. Hence, the new was in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Or maybe that's the other way around. I actually never get that phrase correct. First Thessalonians chapter four, verses thirteen through eighteen, which see. But I would not. Have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. This is, of course, body sleep, not soul sleep. So the next time some weirdos in skinny ties and a creepy cartoon booklet with a family in paradise and a cornucopia in the back come to your door, make sure you remember that. That ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. You don't sorrow the way that they do. Why? Because in Christ, there is a security in death which is both the re- now watch is both the result of and the reason for a steadfastness of faith and holiness in the face of death a steadfastness of faith and holiness in the face of death which is the result of a steadfastness of faith and holiness in life which works in conjunction with each other producing a synergistic biblical confidence Now watch, for if we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together, rapture, with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now watch, verse 18. Wherefore, conjunction, junction, what's that function? Because of all of that, here is how you are virtuous to the doctrine of the rapture. Comfort one another with these words. Now, a few moments ago, I mentioned to you that this event is one of the seven mysteries of the church. There is a very specific reason I did that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Look at it. Let a man so account of us, as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, listen. There is a way to be a faithful steward to each of these mysteries. Verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells you how to be faithful to the mystery revealed in that passage and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse uh, 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 58. You are faithful to the mystery of the rapture of the church. By comforting people with those words when they find themselves in a station in life in where they need to be comforted with those words. Peace from others, ministered by others to those who need it. The recent examples of this in my life are rife. But I can tell you this. If you are not right with your pastoral leadership, then you are not right with the body of Christ And if you are not right with the body of Christ because you are not humbled, then you will not receive the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ gives through the body of Christ. Ten months ago, my heart was not in a place where I could have received the grace that God was offering me through the body of Christ and their desire to comfort me. So what did I have to do in order to receive that grace? He giveth more grace... Wherefore he saith, he resisteth the proud, he giveth grace to the humble. humble. And so friend, God must humble you. So when you need the grace that God gives through the body of Christ and his word to build up your confidence so it can be sufficient to meet the dreaded realities of life, you can do so. These words comprise a large part of what makes the work of the Holy Spirit in comforting me with all comfort possible, both through his word in me and by his word through other believers. And here is the real kick in the head. Do you know what accounts for a considerable measure of that comfort? When you compare 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18 with 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51, wherefore comfort one another with these words. What words? Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Some who are saved will never die. That seems like the good way out, doesn't it? Well, I suppose from one perspective it does. But no matter what, we shall all be changed. Again, depending on your perspective, that's a win-win proposition. Now, I'll say a little bit more about this in my closing comment. But friend, if you're saved and if you're afraid to die, guess what? I have some really good news for you. And by the way, I don't mean this as a joke. Because I have seen how this good news matters when you need it. And I'm not talking about somebody who's been saved for 40, 50, 60 years. I'm talking about a 16-year-old kid. can be comforted with the prospect of death by these words, like like a word fitly spoken at the right time in the right moment to the right person in the right spirit, like apples of gold in pitchers of silver. If you're saved and you're afraid to die, I have some really good news for you. Every day that goes by, your chances get a little better that you won't. And I know this is a weird place to begin winding up this today, but I, just bear with me a little in my folly. Because from another perspective, listen, dying ain't so bad. Hey, Rocky Three and Clever Lang ain't so bad. Ain't so bad. I mean, once you get in the ring, ain't so bad. You want to know why it ain't so bad? because we like to talk about how Christ has removed the sting of death but do we really believe it you know believers who lived a holy life find out that that is true friend yeah. well you are either crazy or you're lying you're not afraid of death crazy possibly lie again certainly a possibility but listen, friend, you either believe this book or you don't. And it's either true or it's not. You know who taught me that? My son. When a doctor asked him, I have to ask you. Nothing seems to shake you, man, nothing. Nothing. How are you really taking this this well How are you doing this This is Connor's answer Smiles with that nervous sort of Please don't talk to me Smile that he has (laughs) And this is what he said Well what I believe is either true or it's not And I believe it's true Now you want to see a doctor get quiet real fast? <laughs> Listen. Take it from a young man who stared death in the face. It's either true or it's not. And what we believe it's true. Reason number two, and we'll close. Because for the saint, death has already been defeated. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... My beloved brethren, for that reason, for that reason, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord so much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Do you believe the Lord took the sting out of death? He did. He did. Do you know why you don't believe that if you don't believe it? Verse 58 is the reason. Conjunction, junction, what's that function? The reason you don't believe it if you don't believe it is for this reason, friend. It's not because you doubt God. It's because you doubt your own steadfastness for Him as you lived your carnal, sap-sucking life. That's what you doubt. You doubt your love. For Christ, you don't doubt His honesty. And you, friend, if you doubt, you rightly doubt. Labored in vain. Those are the people who doubt in their final hour. Not didn't labor. Not didn't earn crowns. Lost the crowns they earned before they got to the finish line. Now that, that, if that isn't folly, I don't know what is. Listen, I've thought a lot about this over the last few months and I've come to this conclusion. 3 years ago my best friend died. His name was Justin. Died of cancer. I'm getting kind of sick of cancer, if you don't mind my saying. One of these days cancer is going to burn in hell. I hope God helps me throw it in. Yeah. Yeah. The last day Justin could talk he motioned me close to his face and this is what he said I'll never forget it he said dude because that was my name to Justin we were radically different my best friend as it turns out was an almost illiterate hillbilly <laughs> who spent his free time hunting Sasquatch <laughs> it's the truth as a matter of fact, Newcomerstown is one of the premier Sasquatch spots on the planet. And three months before he found out he had cancer, he was planning on camping in the woods with cameras for three weeks. Positive he would find Sasquatch in your backyard. <laughs> Couldn't make it up. if I, I, I can't make that up. That has to be true. Dude. what he says. Tomorrow, I'll be looking down and pitying you the way you're looking down and pitying me. A decaying, dying, diseased, infested sinner. Puh. Wasn't expecting that. And then he said, tomorrow I'll be free and you'll still be in bondage. Because the fear of death is bondage. And nothing that I will ever do or think again for eternity will be anything other than what God wants me to do or think and I'll never even have to try to be holy again. And that is freedom. That's what he told me. I've been thinking a lot about that conversation over the last nine months. And you are, of course, free to question my veracity, but you ready? Here it is, my magnum opus, my grand finale, my dramatic closing. I am ready to die. I say bring it. Why, because you're so godly? Pfft, heck no. No. Godly. You think this has anything to do with me being godly? I just want the full experience. I've thought about this. I want the ride up and the ride down and the ride back up and then down again. (laughs) Simply put, some of us are getting an extra ride on the power tower and I want in on the action. I don't have anything to do with being godly? I just think it's going to be freaking cool. <laughs> Paul says, In the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. That dude be tripping, <laughs> and it seems like it was a good trip. <laughs> Comes back to this planet suicidal. I want the no body body experience and then have the body body experience so I can get the full gambit. You have to die before the rapture to get both. You know what Solomon said? Listen now. Solomon said we should weep over birth and rejoice over death. Do you really believe that? You believe when your child comes into this world you should be crying and weeping and throwing a party over their casket? Do you believe that? I didn't 10 months ago, but I used to preach it. I believe it now. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you believe that, friend? I didn't 10 months ago. I preached it. I didn't believe it. David said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This David who had sure mercies, I suppose, that's why he's the only one in the Old Testament who could have that perspective, BTW. You believe that? Mm, I still think you're lying. Well, that's still a good guess. You might think that makes for good preaching, but I don't believe you really feel that way. You might believe it intellectually, but not emotionally. Fair enough. Fair enough. We'll close with that. We'll close with my line. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, I always say. A wise policy indeed. But brothers and sisters, hear me out. Last May, I walked into the Toledo Hospital emergency room, alive, and I walked out dead. I'm not afraid to die. I died nine months ago. And I promise you this, friend. The physical passing of my body will not compare to that experience or the many experiences which have followed. Now, if I'm lying about that, I'll close with a few more lies for good measure. If you wish, you may catalog the following as lessons I learned when my son got cancer. Here goes. It's a lie that God is only in theory, the God of all comfort. That's a lie. It's not just a theory. It's a lie, it's a lie that this life can throw more at a child of God than his or her heavenly Father can handle by his grace. It's a lie that every day, every hour, God's servants don't modestly and peacefully wither away and expire with the silver cord a breaking while though not a word of victory necessarily on their lips, certainly with Christ's deep triumph echoing in their hearts. To tell us that experiencing the outward decay of their corruptible flesh, yet so far emancipated from anxiety that they are able to still think and to pray and to plan and advise others whom they love and like Paul, while possibly still desiring a cloak, concern themselves with the care of the churches, but especially the parchments. I've seen it. And in their final moment, as they approach the battlefield to which, like Peter Ruckman, like Justin Vandiver, and to an extent, I suppose, even like Connor, in one capacity or another, they're, they dreaded this moment their entire lives. They happen upon the happiest of surprises. The enemy is nowhere to be found on the battlefield of life's final conflict. There is no foe with which to fight for death and hell the grave and sin and that old serpent himself were all defeated 2,000 years ago by the captain of their salvation Jesus Christ the righteous on a hill just outside the city wall and now what is left for God to do but with swift and noiseless industry provide through the comforter the finishing touch to the sanctifying work The signal is given. The portal opens. And even the numb and now noxious semi-corpse at once feels the burst of blessedness as the rigid features give way one final time to a smile leaving such a visage on the pale but placid brow. What has happened? How well he fell asleep. Like some proud river Winding toward the sea, calmly and grandly, silently and deeply. Life joining eternity in the saint, like his Savior, is gone, but alive forevermore. Soon to return, in clouds of glory, doubtless to come again, reaping in joy and singing. Friend, it's a lie to deny that this happens every day, every hour, and I know it because I've seen it. And to the extent I I have seen it, I suppose it is less faith than it is experience. O earth so full of dreary noises, O men with such hatred in your voices, O oh, delved and stored gold, the worldly heap, O oh, strife, O oh, curse that o'er it fall, God alone gives comfort through it all and giveth his beloved sleep. Now, if you're saved, your steadfastness will not determine your salvation, but it will determine your confidence. For make no mistake, brothers and sisters, the blood makes you safe. But the word makes you sure. I look out at the church of God, at least at Wildwood Baptist Church, so none may take offense. And do you know what I see? I don't see a hardened platoon of Christian warriors. I see a bunch of rattled pansies that would make 4077 MASH look like the 87th Airborne Division. Bunch of veggie tailed reared morons. <laughs> and so I'm asking you, because I don't know you well enough to make that assessment. Are you sure? Are you sure? Because there is a hardcore platoon of special forces at Wildwood that is sure. They know who they are. And friend, they know who they aren't. Because if you're sure, friend, I can tell you what rattles them nothing rattles them, man. Nothing. What is death to you, really, practically, experientially? Existentially. What is anxiety? What is depression? What is dread? Is it horror? Is it unimaginable? Is it scary? Do you know what death was to the author of 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Do you know what it was to David? David. Do you know what it was to Paul, a faithful warrior of the mystery? It was fair and lovely. It was pure and holy. It was the crown of life. It can be that for you, friend. And if it can be, it should be.